Greyhound leader to track one, over. Track one, we reach Greyhound leader, over. Hello, my name is Mark McManus. On this week's Track One podcast, if you'll lend us your ears, we'll try and keep your interest high as we discuss Naomi Alderman's 11th Doctor novel, Borrow Time. My co-host this week is Jason Miller. Welcome back, Jason. Always a pleasure. Did you just say keep your interest high? Yeah, it's something I'm trying out, some... uh... (laughs) Oh my goodness. Some some, some punning intros, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. (laughs) Well, we'll try not to borrow too much of your time this week. Yes. <laughs> uh, so this book was originally released in 2011, uh, I guess as a time with Series 6, but has been re-released last month with a fancy new cover. Uh, it's the 11th Doctor, Amy and Rory. Um, and uh, yeah, weirdly, I, I bought this when it came out, somehow never got around to reading it. Uh, I've just read it now, now for this, um, but I've, I've really missed out for these years because uh, I think it's, it's probably my favourite of the new series novelizations or spin-off novelizations. It's a great novel. This is definitely one of the three best new series adventures, along with Lance Parkins' The Eyeless that was and great as well, probably yeah. one or two others that are really exceptional. Mm. Yeah, The Eyeless, that's, uh, that's, I rate that one very highly as well. So yeah, you yeah, previously have reviewed this uh, for a Canadian fanzine. Right. About 10 years ago, I started reviewing the new series Adventures for Enlightenment, which is the fanzine for the Doctor Who Information Network, the Canadian fan group. And I was originally given 350 words per book for each of the three books that came out every so often. Mm-hmm. I have not been able to find my review of Borrowed Time, which I must have written in 2011 or 2012. It is not on my computer, and I no longer have my print copies of the fanzine handy, so I have no idea what I said. But I remember two things. Number one, I was very enthusiastic about the book. Number two, I pitched an article where I would interview Naomi Alderman, because the book was amazing. And when I read her biography at the time, she and I have very similar backgrounds, So I thought it would be a really interesting interview, and I never got around to doing it, and eventually the fanzine ceased publication. And of course, now Naomi Alderman is now very, very big, so I've lost my my chance to do a fan-based interview. My memory of 2011 is the book was terrific, and I really wanted to write to the author and tell her how much I enjoyed it. And I wish I'd done that. Yeah, it's. Um, I haven't read any of her other works yet, but on the back of this, I'm definitely going to look some out. I think you said you'd read one of her others? I read Liar's Gospel, mm-hmm. uh, which is set in Jerusalem in the biblical age. That's historical fiction. No science fiction element, no Doctor Who references at all, but it was really intense. And her book last year called The Power was just option for a TV series, which she's going to be, I believe, co-producing and co-writing. And this is big. This is huge, Mark. It was just named one of the 10 favorite books of 2017 by the president. Hold on to your horses. By the president of the United States. No, not that one. The other one. (laughs) The one who actually reads. Yeah. (laughs) His endorsement is a pretty big thing to have. Not for borrowed time. I don't think he's read that. But her latest book got a big endorsement from President Obama. 
Yeah. So this is an author who's very, very big these days. Yeah, that's um, uh, reminded me um, of the uh, endorsement that JFK gave to From Usher With Love and um, gave Ian Fleming a big boost for the Bond books in, in the United States, didn't it? And uh, kind of helped to turn it into such a, a big property. Uh, and James Bond is still with us 55 years later. Yeah. Thank you, President Kennedy. It would be nice um, to think that Obama might go back and read some of the back catalogue and, and pick this one up. <laughs> if Obama becomes a Doctor Who fan, I will reach out to him for a fanzine interview. Yes, definitely. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe his daughters watch it. You might, you might have seen some of it. You know, that'd be. Uh, That's quite possible. I think, yeah. If he and I ever become bros, that'll be the first question that I ask. Yeah. Uh, I saw it something the other day that um, Michelle Obama's book's coming out quite soon. My wife was saying that she, she really wants to pick that up. Uh, so I'll, uh, I'm sure I'll read that as well. That looks very interesting. And if she does a book signing in New York, I will make every effort to go in and see that. Because I actually met President Obama at a book signing in 2006. Oh, wow. Right before he declared his candidacy for president, he was appearing in a bookstore directly across the street from my then law firm. Uh, so I took a very, very long lunch break to get online and get an autographed copy of his book. Is that the, the Audacity of Hope? That's the one. Yeah, I read that, and I read the uh, Dream Dreams from My Father. Was that the first one? That was his first, which came out in the 90s, long before he got into politics. Yeah, yeah, both great reads. Really enjoyed both of those. Um, pretty sad looking back, unfortunately, that uh, <laughs> the direction that things have taken since then. I think if President Trump ever writes a book, it's going to be very, very entertaining. Yes. I think it would be uh -huh. ghost, ghost written probably, though, won't it? Uh, almost certainly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's hope we all live that long, I suppose. That's the... Uh... <laughs> That'll be the we'll be lucky enough to have this conversation next year, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, on to borrowed time. Uh, so this is set in 2007, so sort of a, a few years before the book was written, uh, and just before the, the kind of the global banking crisis, um, which uh, we see caused problems all over the world, uh, and is kind of basically uh, an allegory for that, isn't it, where the, it's set in a bank. Uh, we're introduced to the Lexington International Bank, um, and the first character we meet is Andrew Brown, a guy who works there, who is uh, it's kind of described that he's trying to climb the corporate ladder, but he's just kind of doing it because it's the thing to do. He didn't know what else to do in life. He joined the bank, and now he's just kind of uh, kind of struggling to uh, to get on and, and get promoted. Um, and we meet him on the morning. He's got an important meeting, but everything goes wrong. So he's uh, he kind of spills water on his suit, misses the train gets to the presentation and it's already too late so it kind of all goes wrong that was the exact moment where the where the book grabbed me by the lapels and said this is going to be terrific there was a prologue which wasn't that great the prologue is one of those no character pov prologues which takes a couple of reads to figure out what's going on but once you get to the andrew brown material it's introduced because andrew wakes up in the morning and the sun is streaming through the windows and birds are singing outside and he wakes up feeling refreshed and relaxed. Yeah. And of course, if you work in the corporate field and you're only sleeping five or six hours a night, there is never a time during the week 
when you should wake up feeling refreshed and relaxed. And then he realizes that he's overslept. Yeah. Which sets the rest of the chain of events in motion. And I can completely relate to that, having uh, overslept and been late for a few court appearances. I know exactly what it's yeah. like to wake up feeling refreshed when you should not be. Yeah. Having overslept when you should not have. That's like you immediately know something's wrong because he feels refreshed and relaxed, doesn't it? So, yeah, it's uh, he's a very relatable character in that because kind of things go wrong in the mornings, but basically everything that could go wrong does go wrong for him on this particular day, doesn't it? It was the day of the big presentation. He was supposed to wake up early, get to work three hours early, and work on his pitch. And, of course, he oversleeps because he forgot to plug in his phone and the battery ran out and the alarm didn't go off. And he just compounds... There's another topical pun. Yeah. <laughs> compounds his problem by spilling water on his suit and missing the train by uh, 10 seconds, etc., etc. That's and it. And by the time he gets to work, the presentation is already in process and his arch nemesis has beaten him to the punch. Yeah, this is a character called Samira who is basically at the same level as, as him within the bank. And they're both vying for the same job and trying to both impress the boss and, and, uh, and outdo each other, aren't they? Uh, they are so, both vying for the same promotion. Yeah. Uh, so then he gets a visit from Mr. Symington and Mr. Blenkinsop, um, who, uh, who come in and offer him some help. Uh, and these two characters, they always use each other's names. They always say, they always say oh, Mr. Symington, Mr. Blenkinsop. This reminded me of, of adverts that we used to have in the UK. There was, um, it was a building society called Bradford and Bingley. I think they demutualized and became a bank. Um, and the adverts had characters where it was Mr. Bradford and Mr. Bingley, and they would always say, uh, you know, this Mr. Bradford, yes, Mr. Bingley. Uh, and I thought that might be a little nod to them. Um, and the Bradford and Bingley was actually one of the victims of the, of, the, of the crash. I think they were bailed out by the government, and then the, their assets kind of went to one of the bigger banks. There's one building society that's been around a long time, over 130 years. A society with more than 500 branches and agencies throughout the country. So as you see, it's big. A building society that keeps growing and offering excellent interest rates to sailors. A society with assets so substantial that they just don't make it big, but one of the biggest. Bradford and Bingley Building Society. One of Britain's biggest. Ah, oh, that's a cultural reference that I missed coming from here over in New York. Yeah, I think. I mean, I could be wrong, but that's that's very strongly who they reminded me of. And the comedy translates pretty well, I think, though, because you have a very Robert Holmes-style double act where the two characters are constantly talking to one another. Yes. So I think it works even if you don't understand the specific adverb that they're referring to. Yeah. At least they work for me. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and they, uh, it, it describes their faces as a bit fuzzy um, and that uh, people kind of don't notice them and things. So you think it might be kind of a, a perception filter, which I guess around this time in Doctor Who or not long before this, we were used quite frequently, weren't they? Um, right. And, the and there's, of course, a reason why they appear fuzzy around the edges, which I guess we can get to when the big twist is revealed. Yeah. Uh, and they offer him a deal where they say they can they can help to give him more time, uh, which is obviously what what everybody wants, uh, I guess. Uh, and then we cut to Rory and Amy who are on holiday um, on fifty first century Earth. 
which uh, I was thinking that's around the time of, um, oh, I've forgotten his name. Um, Captain Jack. Oh, okay, uh, Captain Jack. No, I was thinking of, um, the name's gone complete, from the towns of Wen Chiang. The, uh, oh, back to real, yes. Yeah, They're Magnus. both in the 51st century. Yeah. Uh, so I, um, I was looking for any nods to, uh, to either of those characters, but uh, basically they're just a nice holiday. There's a beach um, and they're watching a sunset, but they've been watching it for hours because Rory has bought a futuristic, uh, super lucky romance camera where you can capture the moment. Uh, it creates a time bubble which extends a moment uh, much longer so that you can in- enjoy uh, a sunset or a uh, particular moment for, for much longer because uh, uh, he's basically he's, he's kind of trying to have as much time with Amy as he can when they're not with the doctor uh, so they're not kind of having adventures and he's basically not having to share her with the doctor I guess they're on a three week honeymoon yeah because they're stuck inside the time bubble they don't realize that three weeks have gone by yeah so the doctor shows up at a very intimate moment yeah, so they've, well, they've, they weren't expecting him. They've only had six days in reality, but he's already uh, extended those six days to three weeks. But the doctor's been measuring their subjective time, not the time um, as it would have run normally. Um, but uh, he turns up in the nick of time anyway because trapped inside the bubble with them um, are some mutant reproducing crabs, which are completely harmless. Uh, unless you enclose them in a fixed area, um, in which case they double their numbers every five minutes and become very aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, uh, so luckily the TARDIS arrives just in the nick of time that they can uh, they can escape from that particular scenario. Uh, but the whole thing with the, the time bubble and, and that kind of sort of uh, trying to uh, store time and, and jealously kind of use use your time together uh, it sets up the uh, the story quite well doesn't it and when the doctor arrives he tells them that they're going back to witness the collapse of a bank yeah he's brought them a, a late wedding present hasn't he is uh, which he says is something which is incredibly valuable um and when he uh, produces it it's a tulip um which was very valuable in uh the Netherlands in the 1630s when they had uh, tulip mania and there was this, uh, this sort of bubble that was created where um, tulips were worth as much as houses and things like that. And we'll talk about that at the end of this podcast. Yes. Uh, yeah, because it does sort of dovetail and it kind of goes full circle, doesn't it? But uh, yeah, so the doctor's trying to sort of explain about, uh, about bubbles and things like that. Um, and uh, yeah, he says, well, we'll take them to see a collapse of a bank which uh, is less kind of exciting on the face of it than, than most of the adventures he takes them on. But um, once they arrive, uh, so they arrive in the city of London in 2007, and it's, it's not long before the credit crunch. Uh, what I wasn't sure about here is if the dates entirely work, um, because, uh, well, shortly into the story, Amy goes to visit her parents, and they're confused to see her because they think she's gone travelling which I thought would have put it after their wedding um, because that was the kind of explanation that they gave to Rory's dad in Dinosaurs on a Spaceship. Um, he said, oh, you know, you went traveling after your wedding. So I, I kind of put it that uh, in that sort of time frame. But one of the few dates that we know with any certainty in Doctor Who 
um, is that they got married in 2010 because it was the date that um, uh, where in the uh, I forgot the other story, the Big Bang and and, and whatnot. Um, that was the date where time stood still, or only only kind of ran for a few minutes at a time, didn't it? That episode was broadcast on June twenty sixth, twenty ten, because my daughter was born two days later, and I was watching the episode with one eye because I knew my wife would go into labor at any minute, and I was trying to finish the season before that happened. <laughs> so that date is frozen in my head. Uh, so yeah, that um, that sort of confused me a bit that they think she's traveling, but this this being two thousand and seven, you'd think she would still be living in Ledworth engaged to Rory and working as a as a kisser grandma or whatever she was doing at that point. It was a little bit of an odd feeling for me trying to go back and reset myself mentally because I have not watched a lot of the Eleventh Doctor and I have not read any of his books mm. in the last five years. We had the Peter Capaldi announcement five years ago yesterday. Yeah. And I've been so big on the Twelfth Doctor that I sort of forgot the progression of events of the Amy and Rory relationship, and I'd forgotten about the 11th Doctor and his very specific pattern of speech, which is great when you're a novelist, because with the 11th Doctor running on and on and on, that's a great way of filling up the word count. Yes. <laughs> Just up the 11th Doctor, let him ramble on for half a page, which Alderman does very well here. She captures his, his speech patterns, and I think the descriptions of his body language very, very well, yeah. Uh, so the, uh, the the TARDIS arrives at the Lexington Bank, which is where Andrew Brown, who we met in the first chapter, uh, and his rival Samira work. Uh, and the motto of the bank is "Time is money," um, which is basically the key to the whole book. Um, if you substitute time for money, then the whole thing is an allegory for the, uh, the sort of subprime uh, related banking crisis. Time is a resource that uh, that they'll try that they'll do anything to accrue. This is probably a good point to sidestep and talk about The Big Short, which is basically the movie version of this book. Although actually it's a movie version of The Big Short, a non-fiction book by Michael Lewis about the exact same event. But the connection between Borrowed Time and The Big Short is Karen Gillan, who appears in both. Yes. Karen Gillan has a small part... If I'm remembering correctly, she had played a federal regulator who went to work for the banks because it was a much more lucrative lifestyle. Yeah, she's. Um, I think she's still working um, as a as a regulator, and then she's trying to trying to get a job with the banks. And the um, the the kind of the scene, the point of the scene, isn't it, is to show that well, surely there are rules against a regulator going to work for a bank, and it kind of highlights the. The lack of rules and the lack of regulation uh, that was overseeing the whole banking industry at this time. Uh, so yeah, it's a small scene, but absolutely key, isn't it, in the, in the movie? Right. In the U.S., President W. Bush was a very laissez-faire, let businesses do whatever they want type. Mm. And he weakened federal regulation and he weakened federal oversight, so the banks were able to get away with all this nonsense. And that was one of the things that hastened the collapse here in the U.S., where I went to work one morning with all my money in one bank, and I came home eight hours later with all my money in another bank, because my bank had gone bankrupt at midday. Ah, no way. Very volatile time to be alive. Yeah. I, I um, worked for a bank uh, during this time. Um, I joined a bank in 2005, 
which was part of the Royal Bank of Scotland group, which in the UK is probably the most notorious one uh, in terms of being bailed out. It was bailed out by the government to the tune of sort of 84%. Um, and then it needed another bailout, which they did in secret um, to basically otherwise, the, you know, our doors wouldn't have opened one morning and there'd have been no money to, to stock the cash machines and things like that. Um, and the story of how my bank got into that state is, is kind of fairly ridiculous. There was a Dutch bank called ABN AMRO, uh, which the Royal Bank of Scotland group were trying to buy, and uh, another British bank called Barclays were trying to buy. And the, the, the head of Royal Bank of Scotland was a guy called Sir Fred Goodwin, and he was determined he was going to get this Dutch bank, ABN AMRO, at any cost, because by um, acquiring this bank, they would become the biggest banking group in the world, which had been his aim for, for some time. Uh, so having bought ABN AMRO, basically clear, cleared out all the kind of the capital that the bank had because they didn't foresee any of the, the problems that were on the horizon um, and meant that uh, you just kind of left them in a very weakened position. Uh, and there was a documentary I watched a little while later and they said, and ABN AMRO basically was a very poor investment. It was riddled with, with bad debt and subprime. And someone said to him, why didn't you do the due diligence on ABN AMRO? And his answer absolutely floored me. Uh, he said, um, well, we assumed because Barclays put the first bid in that they'd done their due diligence. So they hadn't done any due diligence on this bank. They assumed oh. that their rivals had done it and just bought it no matter what. Um, so, yeah, that, was, that basically was a big, um, a big factor in, in their uh, needing to be bailed out by the taxpayer. Which explains what happens to Andrew Brown in this book, where he grabs onto a contract that seems too good to be true without ever bothering to read the terms and conditions. Yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, so um, the, uh, the, the characters arrive at the bank, um, but they, they land in the basement, but they, they go outside so they can go in and arrive at reception. Uh, but before they go in, they meet a character called Nadia Montgomery, um, who she, she's got a card that says she's the head of communications and marketing at the bank. But she's kind of camped out outside and, and they think she's a tramp um, and she, she looks kind of really old and, and like she wouldn't work at the bank. Um, but becomes that kind of introduces her uh, to become kind of more important later on. I had completely forgotten that her character existed. I remember the large chunks of the book, but I had completely forgotten about Nadia. Yeah. Uh, but her character is her character is very good. Yeah, I'm surprised that I couldn't remember her. Yeah, she's um, she's kind of one of the early adopters of the of the deal that Symington and, and Blenkinsop have, have offered, isn't she? Uh, right, she's the very first sign that something is very very wrong with time and very wrong inside the bank. Yeah, and there's a nice scene with uh, with Rory here because you get the, the sense of his generosity as well because. Uh, he talks about how he carries a wallet with him, which um, Amy kind of has taken the mickey out of him for because they're sort of traveling through time and space. People aren't going to be taking any, uh, any British currency. Um, but the money he's got with him, he, he gives to her. Um, and it's a nice scene that kind of shows his character um, and Amy's reaction to it as well. Right, right. I agree. Uh, so the doctor arrives. He's got the psychic papers. So he introduces himself as an efficiency auditor uh, called Dr. Schmid. Um, which I guess is the sort of uh, German equivalent of Smith, 
Yes. Uh, and uh, Amy's his assistant, but Rory, who's who's where he decided to wear a suit, but he's found one that's far too big for him, so it looks like he's wearing his dad's suit or something. They think he's the new mailroom boy, so he gets separated straight away and sent down to the mailroom. <laughs> Even the psychic paper doesn't work for Rory. Yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, so they meet the, the head of the London office who's called Vanessa, Vanessa Lane Randall and her assistant Jane Blythe uh, they're given a tour of the bank and uh, you see there's this huge glass sculpture uh, in the foyer of the bank which is supposed to represent work-life balance um, which uh, yeah it's something that uh, having worked in a bank they, they pay lip service to you know? <laughs> The law firm that I worked at for nine years paid absolutely no lip service to work-life balance at all. It was more, you belong to us, you shall be like us. Yeah. <laughs> but I am familiar with the corporate doublespeak of work-life balance. Basically, it doesn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> Work and that's your life. That's it. Um, so not long after they arrive, uh, Amy sees uh, a man who's in an office, seems to touch his watch uh, and then keel over and die. Uh, so they decide that he must just be overworked. Um, but the doctor and Amy are a bit more suspicious about this. So the doctor decides to shadow Vanessa while sort of hints to Amy that she should go and investigate the watches, um, but kind of under the guise of, of investigating um, middle management to see how much stress that they're under. Rory, meantime, goes down to the mailroom um, and uh, finds out that Andrew and Samira seem to send most of the work to the mailroom. And I believe he is on the phone with Andrew when he looks up and sees Andrew across the mailroom having a conversation with somebody else. Yeah. So uh, he decides that he's kind of solved the uh, solved the mystery a bit there. Well, they said, uh, before that, I think, or around this time, his colleagues send him to Storeroom F, um, which is... They, yeah, they think he's haunted or something like that. So they do it as a kind of um, way of kind of hazing the new boy, don't they? Initiation uh, gag, yes. Yeah. Uh, and there's a ghostly apparition of a, of a woman in there who he thinks looks like a younger version of the woman that they met outside the bank. And there's a very good reason for that, as we'll talk about shortly. Yeah. Um, Getting back to Jane Blythe, which is Vanessa Lang, Randall's assistant, wasn't there a character of the exact same name in the Sea Devils? Oh, I don't remember that. That was a note that I made to myself when I read the book on my Kindle back in 2011. Isn't this a character from the Sea Devils? Ah, right. Is that one of the sort of Navy personnel? Right. She was the uh, Naval Base Captain's personal secretary. And there are so many continuity references to the classic series in the book... I was wondering if that was not another stealth reference in and of itself. Yeah, I had not spotted that. Uh, yes, uh, there it is on the uh, cast list for the Sea Devils. Third Officer Jane Blythe. She was the assistant to Captain Hart. So the same name appears in both the Sea Devils and this book. Ah. I will give the author the benefit of the doubt, and I will yeah. assume that was intentional. Yeah, I suppose uh, it reinforces that she's the assistant um, in this story as well to uh, to Vanessa. The same way that the previous Jane Blythe was also the very efficient assistant. Mm. Uh, so uh, the doctor sits in on, on a meeting, uh, which is uh, Vanessa's running, 
Um, and he's sort of he's scanning with the sonic screwdriver and finds that some tachyon particles in there. Far more than there should be for a bank. Yeah. Not um, ordinarily a hub of time travel activity. No. <laughs> uh, so in the meeting, we've also got um, Andrew and Samira um, and uh, some potential clients called the PZP Group come in for a meeting and they, they hope to win this big contract that's worth sort of 300 million pounds. But they were an American group, so we'll call them PZP as we do in America. PZP, of course, yeah. <laughs> and they mention uh, the U.S. banks Morgan Stanley and Merrill Lynch uh, in this part of the book as well, which um, both banks that were hit by the, the subprime mortgage crisis, weren't they, I think? Right. Bear Stearns was completely destroyed, but Merrill Lynch uh, still survives in some capacity. Yeah. Uh, that seemed like another little kind of pointer... Um, as to the the subtext, I thought, uh, but the meeting's quite funny because uh, because Andrew and Samira are these bitter rivals, and they they constantly trying to outdo each other. Uh, every time the client asks for something, one of them dashes out and then returns like impossibly fast with uh, a report or an app, or even at the end a birthday cake for one of the the representatives who who says that it's his birthday. When they barely should have had time to go down the hall to the elevator, they're able to come back within 30 seconds with an elaborate presentation or a very large cake. Yeah, so it's, there's some there's quite a comic scene. It, it seems like quite cartoony. It's, uh, it sort of reminded me of things like um, uh, in Robot when the, the Doctor kind of dashes into the TARDIS and he comes out with um, changes of clothing sort of impossibly quickly and things like that. And one of the continuity references, which I like, the Doctor is trying to figure out how all this is possible, and he references Rastin Warrior glitch technology. Yeah. Because in the five Doctors, the Rastin Warrior robot would do the same thing. Yeah. Disappear, and in the blink of an eye, show up halfway across the set. That's it, yeah, move like lightning, yeah. Yeah, the Doctor sort of questions Vanessa about this, assuming that she's an alien, um, kind of, you know, accusing her of using uh, alien technology, things like that. Um, but then the assistant Jane interrupts with some cake before he gets too far. So he, he phones Amy, um, who is in Samira's office. Uh, we kind of go back a little bit at this point to um, Amy's met with Samira in her office, and she leaves Amy there. Ratching through uh, Samira's desk, she finds a strange list of dates and, and outfits about what she what she wore on various dates. Um, I think it was five outfits for the same date, which some of us uh, don't wear five outfits in a week, let alone five yeah. on the same day. <laughs> That's it. Um, so, uh, Samira comes back, finds Amy uh, going through her drawers, um, and when Amy grabs her wrist to see that she's wearing a watch, like the man that she previously saw die, she hits a button on it, um, and they, they sort of grapple a little bit. And then they can see a sort of a ghost version of the of the fight that they've just had play out across the office. Uh, what he pictured this like was a bit like um, the movie The Prince of Persia, if you've seen that one, where they when they use the dagger on that uh, to turn back time, there's this sort of um, kind of ghosting effect of uh, of it sort of playing backwards, so people kind of running backwards and that kind of thing. And Samira and Amy wind up back 15 minutes in the past. Yes. Amy has accidentally triggered the watch. 
Uh, and this is when we, we start to learn that the, the watches are given to the staff at the bank by Mr. Symington and Mr. Blenkinsop, and they can be used to travel back in time to give yourself more time to accomplish tasks or, or to do something. And this is the moment where Amy realizes that she needs to be in three places at once because at this moment, the doctor calls her from the boardroom with a problem and Rory calls her from the haunted storeroom in the basement. Yeah, because he thinks he's locked in. Um, so she's... Uh, and this sort of plays into some of the themes of, of this era of the show as well with Amy having to choose between the doctor and Rory. Uh, I suppose like the episode Amy's Choice and things like that. Yes. Uh, so she, um, Samir introduces her to Mr. Symington and Mr. Blenkinsop, who can solve this problem by allowing her to lend some time, uh, allowing her to borrow some time, sorry. So they, she puts the watch on and they explain how it works. And I think the first time I read this, I, I didn't pick up on this at this point, but this is quite clever where they say that she'll pay back five minutes per hour. And so she says, so I pay back five minutes per hour. And then Mr. Symington says, per hour, as if he's just agreeing by echoing what she said. And this but he was betting on a term and condition that she didn't understand. Yeah, he's saying, yeah, per hour, per hour. But he, she thinks he's just agreeing with her by repeating the last thing that she said, which is a really nice, clever way of introducing it, I think. And it goes back to the two epigraphs on the first page of the book. Albert Einstein allegedly says, compound interest is the most powerful force in the universe. Yes. And of course, this being Doctor Who, you pair an Albert Einstein quote along with a quote from Cardinal Barusa. Only in mathematics will you find the truth. Yeah, and that's from The Deadly Assassin, isn't it, I think? Yes. Yeah. Amy, however, is not quite up on her mathematics and doesn't understand the significance of five minutes per hour per hour. No. Um, and it, it is sort of deliberately misleading as well, isn't it, that... Uh, well, well, it's it's sort of like the uh, Mr. Symington is it, is correcting her, but makes it seem like he's agreeing with her. So I guess it's in the in the uh, the tone of voice that he's using. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this is the this is where they introduce the the compound interest on the time borrowed. So from here on in, Amy's borrowing time and calculating that she's going to pay five minutes back for every hour that she borrows without realizing that she's paying interest on the interest. Um, and she doesn't read the terms and conditions because. Um, as uh, Mr. Blenkinsop and Mr. Symington say, nobody ever does. <laughs> uh, which reminds me of the, the South Park episode, I think. Is it, um, is it iTunes where they don't... Uh, I think the characters are all signing up to iTunes without reading the terms and conditions. <laughs> and, uh, they all end up kind of locked up. I can't, it's quite an old episode, I think. I can't remember. Uh, and the defense is, well, we, we don't read the, the, the terms and conditions... They say, no, don't believe that. Who would sign something without reading the terms and conditions? But obviously, constantly, people do that all the time, especially on the internet. Oh, yes. Uh, you sign up for, for any kind of social media or anything like that. I imagine very few people will uh, will sit and read through it all. Especially when you get the constant privacy updates every five minutes now. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, it. Uh, the whole thing's designed so that I guess nobody ever reads it. So my big note on chapter 7, which is where Amy discovers the power of the watch, my note, which I left to myself in 2011 on my Kindle, is you would think Amy is smarter than this. So let's talk this chapter through. Amy goes back 
a quarter of an hour, and in the process of activating the watch and giving yourself extra time, you get an energy boost to which she rapidly becomes addicted. Mm -hmm. And she keeps sending herself further and further back in time to get a haircut, to buy new clothes, to do this, to do that. And she ends up going back a full week to her parents and spends the weekend doing chores around their house, leaving them very, very, very confused. And then she waits a week to meet up with the doctor, but realizes that she's missed her appointment, so has to go yeah. back in time again. Yeah, to and she's... At the precise moment when she needs him. So it's been a week for Amy, but only 30 seconds for everybody else. Yes, and she's, she left the clothes behind in Ledworth, so she needs to go and buy some more and all this kind of stuff. And then, uh, yeah, she, she rapidly gets caught up in this, finds it too easy. Um, and I, I thought the, the stuff about the kind of the rush that it gave her um, is, is kind of probably analogous to kind of, uh, you know, people kind of running up debt on credit cards and that kind of thing. It's that that kind of the uh, the buzz of spending um, and not thinking about the uh, the, the interest and the, and the debt to be paid back later. It's a very powerful feeling to have thousands of dollars at your disposal. But, of course, at some point you have to pay it back. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, and it's quite um, quite an interesting thing to do with the book as well. I think is to take her out of the immediate action for that amount of time and and have her go and do this other stuff. Um, it's a very manic montage. Yeah, and on the one hand, it's Amy being very very foolish in order to advance the plot, but on the other hand, it's completely reasonable because everybody else, if these watches are addictive, yeah, if I were offered this watch in my my old law firm, I would have taken it. Yeah. Because there was never enough time in the day to do all the things I needed to do between court appearances and returning phone calls and writing briefs. If I could have had 24 hours for every eight, you can guarantee I would have signed up for that watch and lined up like poor Andrew Brown, 55,000 years in the hole. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it, it adds up quickly, doesn't it? So on the one hand, you're saying, Amy, no, you're smarter than this. But on the other hand, you're like, I want one of those watches. Sign me up right yeah. now. <laughs> And she kind of does it with good intentions as well, doesn't she? She's doing it initially so that she can help both Rory and the doctor. Um, and then instead of just helping Rory as well, she goes to buy him uh, his lunch. So she buys him his favorite sandwich uh, and that kind of thing so they can have lunch together. It's it's not entirely selfish, the reason that she that she starts to do these things. Um, which it kind of makes it a little bit more understandable, I thought. Right. I like the uh, the thing that uh, when uh, they said, oh, you bought me my favorite sandwich and it's it's just ham and cheese. And I thought that was quite a good character thing for Rory as well. It's just the kind of unadventurous uh, thing that he probably would have for his lunch, isn't it? That would be his favorite. Yeah, it's not the most sophisticated taste on yeah. poor Rory. <laughs> she, uh, and also by doing this, she thinks she realized she solved the mystery as well of what's going on at the bank. Um, and how it can be that Rory saw the two versions of Andrew Brown or saw one and was talking to one at the same time. Uh, so she sort of tallies up how much she thinks she owes and decides that she won't borrow more than will cost her a week in interest to pay back. Um, so she, uh, she eventually turns up to see the doctor. Uh, and he immediately figures out that she's made a mistake. Yeah, yeah, straight away, even just by looking at her, doesn't he? It's, uh, because she's changed clothes and changed her hairstyle. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a sense that he's sort of sensing something on her as well, um, that there's this, uh, 
time harvester that he calls the watch. A parasitic organism. Yeah. Uh, and he's not angry, he's disappointed, which, uh, which makes it feel worse, I think. <laughs> yes. Uh, so uh, at this point, for this scene, uh, we've got a reading from uh, Jason McLaughlin, who uh, regular listeners will know is, uh, is a regular co-host that we have on. Um, so we'll listen to that now. This is bad, the doctor said. It's very, very bad. I don't see how it could possibly be any worse. How do you get this thing off? They were standing in the now empty conference room. The doctor was wrestling with the clasps on the inside of her wrist. They looked as if they were easy to undo. Just several interlocking buckles. But for some reason, his hand slid off every time he tried to open them. Protected, he shouted. Woven into your personal time stream, the only way to remove it will be to destroy the central hub where the time is being stored. But where's the hub? Where's the hub? Doctor, Amy said. Doctor, why are you panicking? Panicking? I'm not panicking. I'm just very calmly, very rationally, being quite insistent that we have to get this thing off you. But why? Do you know what this is? No, of course you don't. Why would you? You just let anyone at all put any kind of temporal engineering device on your wrist, I suppose. You probably do it all the time. This is a time harvester device. It's a parasite. Or it's a very small element of a parasitic organism. Leave it on there much longer and it'll start sucking the time right out of you. And you really wouldn't want that to happen, believe me. He was pacing agitatedly waving his hands in the air and rubbing his forehead. Think, Doctor, think, he muttered to himself. But, Doctor, it's okay, Amy said. It hasn't taken any time away from me. She took a deep breath. In fact, it's sort of the other way round. It lets me borrow time, Doctor, as much as I want. But, she added hurriedly, I've only borrowed about four days. The interest is about eight hours. It's nothing. The doctor stopped pacing. He turned towards her. Say that again, he said. I've only borrowed four days, she said. The other bit. His face was very grim. The interest is only... She slowed down. About eight hours. Did you say interest? Amy suddenly felt like crying, and she didn't know why. Yes, she said, and her voice was very small. Doctor rested his forehead on hers, just for a moment. He spoke very quietly. Oh, Amy, he said, it's very bad, and I don't know how to make it better. He pulled at her wrist again, pressed a button or two on the watch, poked at a little indentation on her face that she'd never noticed before. A display came up, projected out of the watch in the air in glowing orange letters. It read... Borrowed time. Total, four days, three hours. See, said Amy, wriggling her wrist to try and get out of its grasp. That's what I said. Four days, five minutes interest on the hour. Eight hours total. It's fine. I'll pay it back now if you just let me press the... She reached for the button that Symington and Blendcop had shown her. The pay back the time you've borrowed button. They warned her it might make her feel a bit tired. All that time coming off her lifespan in one go. But better than having the doctor 
fussing over her anymore. No, the doctor shouted and wrenched her wrist around so she couldn't reach it. Ow, you're hurting me. Not as much as it'll hurt if you try to pay that time back. Look, just look at the interest. The display changed. Interest terms. Five minutes per hour per hour. That's what I said, said Amy. No, you said five minutes per hour. That's what it says. No. The doctor wheeled round and grabbed a magic marker from the table. It says five minutes per hour per hour. Totally different thing. If you promise not to touch that watch, I'll explain. Do you promise not to touch it? Yes. Thank you very much to Jason for the reading there. Um, particularly yes, like his, thank you uh, so much. Yeah, particularly like his 11th Doctor voice. Uh, it's quite, uh, quite accurate there. And you can hear Jason on the podcast again in a couple of weeks. We'll be talking about the Blu-ray box set of season 12. So, yeah, so at this point, uh, Amy's beginning to realise what she's done. Um, that uh, she's, she's borrowed significantly more than she thinks. She thinks she's borrowed four days, so she'll be paying eight hours in interest. Uh, and she's about to press the button which will on the watch, which will pay that time back. So essentially age her uh, the difference, so age her by eight hours. Um, but the doctor stops her from doing this and gives her a lecture on compound interest, which I think, it, it, um, as I was saying earlier, uh, Naomi Alderman really captures the 11th Doctor, but I felt in this scene, he's really, you can really hear Matt Smith's voice. Um, there's a bit where he sort of rests, he said rests his forehead on hers, um, and that seemed like a very 11th Doctor to, thing that he would do with, with Amy as well. Yes. Uh, and then we, so we get the, uh, he uses um, the birthday cake from the earlier meeting to illustrate how compound interest works, um, which is basically where the pay, she starts paying interest on the interest that she's accrued so far. So for the four days that she's borrowed so far, she already owes 10 years of her life, which is now going to go up by about a year every hour, um, which is a pretty scary concept, I think. Terrifying. Um, and Mr. Blenkinsop and Mr. Symington turn up here and we find out that they're sort of shark creatures, uh, which is quite a Russell T. Davies here, isn't it, where you have an alien that's uh, kind of a, an anthropomorphized animal. Um, not only that, it's a perfect metaphor for the book because they're not just sharks, they're lone sharks. Yeah, yeah, it's quite they're on the nose, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> And they, they start to be described as moving like sharks, and they can uh, they can uh, sense the people with watches and things like that. So they're quite vicious. They can sort of they transform into more shark-like beings. So they've got the big teeth, uh, and they 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 use their heads to kind of butt through doors and things like that, don't they? And as somebody who's been practicing as a lawyer for twenty years, lawyers, at least here in the states, are called sharks. That is not a complimentary description, and no. I believe. Naomi Alderman worked at a law firm in New York for a short while. Ah, right. So I'm sure she was familiar with the expression. Yeah. Yeah. My wife's a lawyer as well. I'm, I'm, I'll be careful what I say. Yeah. My condolences. <laughs> Just make sure she doesn't come home wearing a watch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think she'd probably, like you, would, be, uh, would, would probably appreciate a bit of extra time as well. Oh, yes. Uh, so the, uh, the the 
Doctor and Amy run away from the from the shark creatures, uh, where they find Rory, who is having lunch with Amy from earlier on because of the way that she's sort of looped back in time, that this is concurrent with, with the lunch that she's having with Rory. And then in her memories, it all changes. So instead of having lunch, um, Rory runs away because the other Doctor and Amy come out and they, they have to run away from the sharks. Uh, right. Which was a, a nice way of sort of illustrating how it works. They, they, they talk about how if you travel back in time, you can't see the other versions of yourself that are there, but other people can see them potentially. Um, which is because they, they talk about the Blinovich limitation effect, don't they, from Day of the Daleks? And from many, many other third Doctor novelizations. It's yeah. sort of the ultimate Doctor Who continuity reference. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then they meet Nadia again, uh, so who was the older lady that they met right at the start when they arrived at the bank, and she's revealed to have a malfunctioning time watch. Um, so it randomly sort of gives and takes away time, so she can uh, she ages and de-ages at random. Um, but it means that the the shark creatures who are Symington and Blinkinsop can't actually see her, but she can see them. Right. Uh, so she helps them, and they, they sort of recruit her uh, to help at this point. So she goes to check on the TARDIS for them to find out that it's it's surrounded by Blenkinsop and Symingtons who can reproduce themselves ad infinitum by by travelling around in time as well. They become aware that the TARDIS is a source of temporal energy, so they try to break into the TARDIS using not just a bomb, but a time bomb. Yeah. Another terrific pun. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they're sort of drawn to it, aren't they? I guess like the kind of blood in the water for sharks. Uh, they realise yes. that it's this incredibly powerful sort of temporal uh, artifact, uh, and then they uh, they decide to recruit Andrew Brown because they know that he's inside the bank and knows what's going on. And this is a nice kind of funny scene with the galactic inquiries. Uh, so instead of directory inquiries, which we would use here to, to um, find somebody's phone number, the galactic inquiries can find anybody, um, but not by any useful information or any of the usual information, like what his job is or anything. Uh, they eventually narrow it down by the description of having egg on his tie. <laughs> yes, uh, the spot on his tie. It's very funny. Yeah, it was quite Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, I thought, that, um, that scene with the galactic inquiries. Yes, and then there was another bit where there aren't just men named Andrew Brown on Earth, but there are also alien species. Yeah. Uh, there, were, there, was a, there was an alien cult called End Rue Burn, which I'd be laughing out loud. Yeah. On a crowded subway train. Yeah, and they, they, these are the ones that are planning to take over the Earth as well, aren't they? Yes, there, were, there was the Andrew Burn clan of warrior mollusks currently residing in the Thames. Yeah. And the End Rue Burn doomsday cult intending to destroy the city in a little over 271 days from now. And there's a couple of Terrific times... In, stuff. Yeah, there's a couple of times in this book where it sort of hints that there's other adventures and things going on at the same time, isn't this? This is one of them. Because uh, yes. I think this is where the Doctor says, I think I've already dealt with that. Or we'll either come back and deal with it, or I might have already dealt with it, I think. Right, later on in the book, there's actually a direct reference to uh, Attack of the Cybermen, where the Doctor lands on the same day yeah. When the TARDIS showed up in Totter's Yard in 1985. Yes. Yeah, I like Make that. This one of the few books that would actually bother to call back to Attack of the Cybermen. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a story infamously weighed down with continuity in itself, isn't it? Yeah. 
Yeah, the story where Ian Levine insists on being given writer's credit because of all the continuity references he put in there. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's not a great calling card, is it? So. No, but the other continuity references are very good, so I'll give her a pass on that one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we uh, they go to Andrew Brown's home um, where they find multiple versions of him all doing jobs around the house. After they say that he wouldn't be stupid enough to use the extra time at home, only in the office. Yeah. And then they arrive at his home and there are 17 Andrew Browns doing 17 chores at once. Yeah. <laughs> um, and when they look at his watch, they find that he owes 55,000 years, uh, which is obviously way more than he could ever pay back. Which confuses the doctor quite a bit initially, because why would an alien species charge 55,000 years of interest to somebody with a lifespan of 70 years? Yeah, and I think that this... becomes important later. Yeah, this is a hint that, um, that it's about the subprime housing market as well, I think, isn't it? This, uh, when, um, as is illustrated brilliantly in the movie, the big short that we mentioned earlier, that um, uh, people without jobs and things like that were being given mortgages, like huge mortgages and things like that, people with, uh, with no credit and, and whatnot. Um, and I believe so, a dog who filled out a credit card application was also given a mortgage loan. Yeah, that, yeah, they go to the guy's house and um, uh, they ask for for the the homeowner, and it's his landlord's dog. Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, that that made me kind of think about the the whole subprime thing. This um, fact that he he's uh, he owes fifty five thousand years and has been been given all this time that he can't possibly pay it back. Uh, so the, uh, he's got some paperwork uh, at his home from work and he finds that the Lexington Bank is making a payment of nearly half a million pounds every month through a fictitious department to a self-storage facility at the Millennium Dome um, or what used to be called the Millennium Dome it's now called the O2 Arena uh, in Wait, London. The O2 Arena? Yeah. Do they sell the naming rights to a bank? So it's, uh, the O2, is, uh, O2 here is a mobile phone network Oh, good lord! Yeah, it's, that happens uh, here in the states too. Every baseball stadium or hockey arena is now named for a bank. In fact, the big sports arena in downtown Brooklyn, where I was this morning, right across the street from my gym, is Barclays, named for the big London bank. Ah, right. I didn't realize Barclays was was over there actually. I guess. Well, that arena was built right around the time of the subprime mortgage crisis. So the arena was actually in a bit of financial trouble as it was being built. And I guess Barclays was the only solvent bank at that exact moment in time willing to pay naming rights. Yeah, I think um, well, Barclays was one of the banks here that didn't take any money from the government. I think I'm right in saying they took it from sort of wealth funds from oil-rich nations uh, rather than from the UK government, from the Bank of England. So that's why a basketball team and my favorite ice hockey team both play at the Barclays Center in Brooklyn, where there are no Barclays branches anywhere else in the borough. Right. So the, uh, when they arrive at the Millennium Dome, uh, they don't go to the main entrance, but they find a, a tiny door further around the side of the dome. So the, they, met, they meet an alien called uh, Yomalet Ram, who is the, the keeper um, of, the, uh, of this place called Little Green Storage. Uh, as in Little Green Man, because it's a, a place where aliens leave their stuff while they're on holiday on Earth. So they can park spacecraft and things like that under here, um, because they have the parking so bad in London, <laughs> which, was, uh, which I thought was a nice gag as well. 
And the doctor, of course, also has a storage locker at this facility of his own, which comes to be important later. Yeah, this um, so the, this is a sort of a dome underneath the dome, making it uh, a sphere. But it seems like it's bigger than the, the the Millennium Dome. But that's because as they enter, they've actually been shrunk to seven and a half percent of their original size. So they can fit a lot more stuff in in the the underdome than the the actual dome. Uh, so the Doctor picks the alien's pocket and gets a master key, which will allow him to open any of the um, any of the storage lockers that are down there. So they start opening a few at random. And it's a bit like sort of Gringotts Bank, I thought, in Harry Potter, where there's all kinds of odd things in these vaults. Um, that's right, that's right. Yeah, one of them seems to be a doorway into Narnia. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's another one where some alien robots uh, are working on a, a sort of a junked TARDIS console. Right, um, I wasn't sure if that was a reference to the Doctor's wife or something else. Yeah, I wasn't sure of that either. Um, whether it, yeah, it was that one from that the uh, that the Doctor and Idris escape from uh, from that little planetoid on. Yeah, whether it was just um, uh, another Time Lord's TARDIS. Uh, but the Doctor promises to come back and, and and sort that out as well, doesn't he? <laughs> yes, he does. So with that and and the fact that the, the a future incarnation of the Doctor has taken out a storage. It's this thing that like they've wandered into some other adventures, which I quite like. It's quite a nice idea that because uh, it's all about time and overlapping the time and things that the Doctor's uh, accidentally straying into into future adventures as well. Yes. So they they find the Lexington Banks storage facility, which have these brick-like devices in which um, are measuring time borrowed, but they're not actually storing the time itself because the Doctor can't feel. Uh, he says the ebb and flow of time around them. These are more like accounts um, or statements, which are just recording the time being stored elsewhere. Um, and then before they get too much further in the investigation, they, up until this point, Amy and Rory have kept seeing these cockroaches, um, and quite big cockroaches, um, which then the Doctor realises is an automatic defence system for people who've broken in to storage lockers that they shouldn't have done, and they eventually get these giant cockroaches attacking them. The cockroaches get bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, so they have ones that are sort of the size of dogs and things coming after them. Uh, or there's one the size of a mini, they say, don't they, which is, which is huge. Uh, yes. And, then, and they open as many doors as they can trying to find a way to escape from these cockroaches. Yeah. And Finds a room staging live reruns of I Love Lucy, the old American sitcom. Yeah. And Paul Rory finds a room made entirely of mucus. Yeah. Making the question, who needs to store mucus in a bank? Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be some particularly vile alien, you think? Yeah. Yes. Uh, so eventually they've they got no choice but to go to the doctor's locker. Um, so they get through the first door and find themselves just in a small vestibule. And when they try to get to the next one, they get these sort of automated messages coming up, which are clearly from the future doctor saying, you don't want to come in here. You definitely don't want to come in here. Um, and then eventually a drawer opens, which gives him um, a can of bug spray, a magazine article and some batteries. Because uh, Rory's tried to use his camera, which was from their holiday in the future. Uh, we used it earlier on, didn't he, on some of the shark creatures. It sort of trapped them in a time bubble temporarily. 
Uh, when he tries to use it on the cockroaches here, he finds that the batteries are dead, uh, which is odd because they've got these futuristic batteries that never run out. They were supposed to recharge from background cosmic radiation and never run out of juice, but there's a reason for that. There's a reason why the, why the camera's failing. Yeah, which uh, is the, the article that they have. And the, and the article and the batteries are in a, a time-proof bag, which is another interesting concept I thought they'd introduce here, which is that if it's in this bag, then they, uh, it's, it's immune from the effects of change in the past. And the doctor says if he puts Rory in the time-proof bag and goes back and kills his grandfather, then he'll still be alive. <laughs> which is... Uh, a nice way of illustrating. Rory's so kind of hapless with things like that as well. <laughs> it's, uh, it's sort of an inadvertently brutal uh, example for him. Which reminds me of the whole series of Lawrence Miles novels where the Doctor turns out to be Grandfather Paradox. Yeah, yeah, in the uh, the Eighth Doctor Adventures, isn't it, that I think, yeah. Yes. Yeah, this is um, Faction Paradox stuff, isn't it, yeah. Uh, but when they pull the magazine article out of the bag, the magazine article suddenly changes. Inside the bag, the magazine article is about 51st century professors who invent these everlasting batteries. When they take the magazine article out of the bag, the article changes and refers to different people entirely who are not nearly as successful. <coughs> the implication being that in the present, people are using the watches and they're mortgaging their futures for extra time in the present. And that wipes out their survival. Nadia makes a reference because she's aged prematurely to all the children she'll never have. Yes. The doctor realizes that all these folks are killing themselves on these watch contracts and they'll never have kids and that alters and weakens the future. So yeah. a true Doctor Who fashion, from this one little business transaction, the whole future is at stake. Yeah, which is a great idea, I think, for um, it expands the scale of the story as well, doesn't it? And and the, the threat, it's not just a few people in the bank, uh, the, the sort of future of the human race is at stake now, because more and more people use the watches, because the more time that the shark creatures can accrue, the further back in time they can go to introduce the watches earlier and have more people using them. And we quickly learn that it's not just bank employees wearing these watches, but it's a whole bunch of other influential people. Yeah, they see on TV that uh, there's sort of newsreaders are wearing them and, and scientists are announcing these breakthroughs, uh, obviously because they've, they've been able to borrow time to spend more time on research and things. Uh, uh, so the, uh, the escape then from... The, uh, the little green storage um, by using, Andrew uses the bug spray uh, and he uses his time watch to create multiple versions of himself so that he can spray all the bugs at once because uh, he, he sort of figures well I've already borrowed 55,000 years I, you know a few more minutes aren't going to make much difference at this stage poor Andrew yeah um, and uh, back at the bank Samira is trying to talk to other people who've got watches um, so she goes to see a character called Dan who has had a recent upturn in productivity uh, I think this was a really sad scene because he's got a promotion he's excited to tell his wife um, and he says I just need to do something I've been meaning to do for a while um, and before she can react he's, he's pressed the button on his watch which is he to pays his time, um, and immediately dies of old age immediately ages to death yeah that's so one of Samir 
Yeah, and it, so it's another character who hasn't realised about the compound interest. Thinks he's, you know, maybe going to pay back a few weeks or months. Um, but he's going to stop using it. Plans to stop using it now that he's got his promotion. Um, but, uh, yeah, he's, uh, he's, he's completely, uh, yeah, aged to a husk from it. Then we get the uh, a visit by the Chancellor of the Exchequer to the bank, who um, I, I guess the, the US equivalent, I think, is the Secretary of the Treasury. Yes, so which I believe right now is uh, Steve Mnuchin. Right. That's, that's as we record. <laughs> There's a, a, a high turnover of staff in the White House, isn't there? <laughs> yes, by the time this actually reaches the internet in 72 hours, it may be somebody else. <laughs> um, and this uh, this is quite sort of loaded, I think. This, this sort of scene, it describes the, the Chancellor arriving at the bank. Um, and at, at, at this time in 2007, the UK Prime Minister was Gordon Brown, who for 10 years up to that point had been the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Um, and in the car on the way there, he's reflecting how well the economy is doing um, and saying it's the end of the cycle of boom and bust, which one of the things that Gordon Brown is quite famous for is announcing the end of boom and bust while he was the chancellor. And then not long after he became the prime minister after Tony Blair, so we had the crash. Um, so, yeah, that was one of his uh, one of the things that was repeated quite a bit that um, it wasn't the end of boom and bust, and we obviously had this huge bust uh, under, yeah, after sort of 10 years of his stewardship of the economy, which had seen very little regulation of the banks. Similar to George W. Bush here in the States, which led to the global meltdown here in 2007-2008. Yeah. Uh, so he's come to the bank to make a speech to congratulate the Lexington Bank and, and talk about how well the economy is doing. Um, and the heroes kind of see this as an opportunity to get the word out because the TV cameras are there to, to get the word out to the rest of the world about what's going on with the aliens and the watches and things like that. Um, which Amy kind of, uh, she kind of rushes onto the podium first and starts talking about aliens and things. Um, it's not very convincing, obviously, because she sounds crazy and she realizes herself that she sounds crazy. Um, and it's not until Samira kind of gets on, on camera um, and she's been much more careful than Andrew, although they're um, they're going for the same promotion. She hasn't borrowed anywhere near as much time. Um, presumably, she hasn't been using it at home as well, uh, like Andrew has. So she owes a relatively small thirty-five years, which is still a huge amount of time to to owe. Uh, and as to demonstrate that, she presses the button on a watch and ages thirty-five years at a stroke to try to convince. Uh, the viewers at home that uh, that of what is going on. Uh, so it says that this is actually going to be going out on the um, the parliamentary news channel, which I think is uh, we've got BBC Parliament here, um, which does not have a high viewership, I don't think. Um, That's similar to C-SPAN here in the states. One C-SPAN channel covers the House of Representatives, and the other one covers the Senate. Yeah. It's addictive viewing once you turn it on, but it's certainly not one of our highest-rated TV stations. No, I think um, I think I know that from the West Wing. Actually, I think I think everything I know about American politics is basically from the West Wing. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty good place it's, to start. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's great. Well, I, I um, follow the West Wing, and um, I now listen to uh, Pod Save America. Um, I find that uh, that podcast great, and uh, that is very reassuring. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, very good podcast. I'll put a link in the show notes to that if, uh, if anybody doesn't know it. Very good. But it, it's all, all for nothing, really, because um, because of the uh, the time-travelling abilities that their opponents have. They've travelled back in time and, and cut off the broadcast so that the, it hasn't actually gone anywhere. Except uh, for the building cafeteria. Yeah. Uh, so a big battle ensues where there's there's multiple shark men are attacking the, uh, the, the main characters. And then they're going to call in the debt on Amy, but Rory steps in to... Uh, he says he'll, he'll sacrifice 20 years for her but then the doctor steps in and says take me instead um, basically I, I know about the time markets and then Vanessa arrives well, until this point we're assuming Vanessa is the big bad because when Andrew frowned his contract in the Millennium Dome or as we call it now the O2 Arena his contract was stamped if lost please return to Vanessa Lang Randall Lexington Bank yes so we assume that she's behind the whole thing yeah, and everything up until this point, the fact that she's been presiding over this bank where else has been going on and, and reaping the benefits of the um, increased productivity, it makes you think that she's the she's the mastermind behind it all. But she actually does have no idea what they're talking about. And she thinks that the the productivity and everything that, that has come about is due to her time-saving initiatives and motivational skills. Um, which um, I think probably we've all had bosses like that who just kind of take credit for everything and think that they're much more effective than they really are. I have yet to have a manager or a supervisor who has been truly inspirational. Yeah. <laughs> Adversarial, yes. Inspirational, no. Yeah, but the, you know they think that they've come in and made all the difference. Uh, so that, that I thought was, was quite a funny scene. But we, we realize at this point that the real big bad behind everything was Jane all along the assistant uh, which is quite a good reveal uh, reminded me of sort of the pirate planet when the nurse turns out to be the uh, the big bad instead of the pirate captain yeah I will admit I did not see that coming and when I read the book a second time seven years later I did not remember that plot twist at all yeah so by surprise twice 2011 and 2018 yeah very very effective um, and, and uh, as you mentioned before, the Jane Blythe Sea Devils connection, it probably just reinforces that idea. It reminds you of another assistant. Um, so it's probably another layer of uh, of convincing that they put in there. Jane Blythe was not a villain in the Sea Devils. No, that's it. Um, so the, uh, the Doctor takes on Amy's debt and everyone... Uh, apart from Amy and Rory, which is surprised when the Doctor doesn't age at all. So Jane realizes he's a Time Lord at this point. Um, he volunteers to to sort of wear a watch, and he takes Andrews as well, so that he doesn't sort of owe any more time. Um, and goes off with Jane because she realizes that uh, she actually does have a commodity that's worth a lot now because she's got the last of the Time Lords uh, and a working TARDIS. Um, and he, before he goes, he hints to Amy that uh, basically she should smash the huge glass sculpture that they saw at the start um, because that has got time stored in it. It's a, basically a liquidity fund that the um, the aliens are using to move around in time because they haven't actually called in much of the debt so far. But the doctor's pun is so oblique that it sails right over Amy's head. Yeah. <laughs> a couple more chapters go by. Yeah, she says so he says something like you'll have a smashing time or something like that. Yeah. Yes. Um so and I think at this point we realise that 
Jane Blythe and Mr. Blinkinsop and Mr. Symington are all part of the same creature. They're sort of tendrils of the same the same being. Uh, so they uh, she's she's sort of the brain and, and they're out kind of signing people up uh, for these uh, these time contracts. So the uh, she takes the doctor to the time market, which is uh, I guess like the stock exchange, where aliens are investing in time contracts, which seems like it's the sort of securitization that uh, that the banks started doing with the mortgage contracts. So this is kind of the cause of all the problems when they bundled together a lot of mortgages um, as securitization and, and sold that as a bond. Right, they turned they turned the subprime mortgages, which were suspect, into an investment vehicle. So you had companies and cities investing the life savings of their employees in these very suspect subprime mortgage contracts. Yes, when it started, they would just do the the really solid mortgages, the the AAA rated ones. But because they made so much money to to meet uh, demand, they kept putting worse and worse mortgages in them. Um, and as we know from the big short, they were able to basically self-certify them as AAA. Um, well, they, they self-certify them. And then when the, uh, the characters um, visit, uh, I think they visit Standard and Poor's, don't they? Um, who basically say, well, we have to rate them AAA because otherwise they'll take the business elsewhere. Uh, uh, yes. And they say, well, you know, like we need the, we need the business. They'll just go to Moody's otherwise. So I think that's a big moment for... Um, Steve Carell's character in in the movie, that he realizes that the whole system is so rigged and corrupt, uh, and that there is no oversight, that uh, uh, these these things are worthless, and everything they've suspected all along is true, um, and it's the same thing here. So these aliens are buying up time contracts, which are the uh, the contracts that. Jane or the Jane creature is made with the humans um, and the doctor sort of points out well this by this time even because the amount of time that's passed since last time they looked Andrew Brown's watch now has an account which owes a hundred thousand years but the aliens aren't concerned because Jane has got these documents that say that's only 10% of a human lifespan so she's kind of certified that humans live for a million years um, and this is the whole subprime thing Obviously, they don't live anything like that long. Um, but she wants them to buy up all these contracts, and that is why she's not actually collected any time. All she's done is collect the contracts because she's going to sell them on to people who are going to find them worthless. Nobody uh, has done their due diligence, and nobody has bothered to figure out how the lifespan of a human is a little bit less than 100,000 years. Yeah, so the doctor basically says, well, uh, basically Google it. <laughs> Uh, Google the lifespan of a human, um, and this causes panic on the markets. Um, realize that they're that they're absolutely worth it, and they start to dump all the stock. And all of a sudden, you hear the sound of all these aliens crying, "Sell, sell, yeah. sell!" <laughs> just like in the just like in Wall Street here ten years ago. That's it. Yeah. So there's a, there's the time market crashes, um, and the doctor's then able to buy up the remaining contracts very cheaply. <laughs> Two things that I found very clever about the time market sequence. Number one, the time market does not take place in a building like on Wall Street. It takes place in a millisecond of time. Yeah. And the other clever point is this is still happening today, these panicky sell-offs, which the doctor induces here. I think the three worst days in the history of the U.S. stock market all occurred earlier this year. 
Donald Trump would make some crazy announcement and the stock market would drop a thousand points in an hour. Yeah. And that happened like three times in a week. So this, this, is, this, is, this is a timeless, but even though it's tied to a very specific moment, this is universal. We are still having these crazy sell-offs. Absolutely, yeah. I guess the uh, I guess the trade war stuff that that's been happening recently in the U.S. has had a has an effect on the the stock market over there. Uh, precipitously, yes. Mm. Um, yeah, over here it's Brexit. There's as, as time goes on, it's increasingly looking like we're going to get what they call a no deal Brexit. So we're going to crash out of the European Union with no deal to trade with the EU. Um, basically, the only country in the world then that has no trade deals. We're going to have no uh, no processes in place, even for importing food or medicine, anything like this. It's, it's potentially going to be a huge disaster. So the, the governor of the Bank of England uh, within the last couple of days has said this will be disastrous. Um, and the value of the pound dropped a little bit. And people were blaming the governor of the Bank of England for the drop in the pound, which as somebody very uh, astutely put on Twitter, which I like, it's like blaming a smoke alarm for a fire. <laughs> uh, well, the people who voted leave did not read the fine print. It's kind of like Andrew Brown on the watch. Yeah, I mean, I I think the people that voted leave have got the ability to read um, maybe a tabloid like the Sun or the Daily Mail, and that's about it. Um, which are very uh, pro leave, uh, kind of yeah, very. Uh, I, I can put this politely. I don't know. <laughs> They're basically like the Fox News, I suppose, of, uh, of print journalism in the UK. I'm sorry. I'm yeah. so sorry. <laughs> um, Let's transition to a topic with a happy ending. Borrow time. Yes. <laughs> the time market collapses, and the doctor returns to the bank, and he is now in charge of everybody's account. So he is able to essentially void the contract with just about everybody on earth who ever wore one of these watches. Now, the bank, of course, is in trouble and they're going to collapse for unrelated reasons. Because it just about hit the credit crunch, yeah. Because the credit crunch is about to strike. But the temporal problem has been solved, except for Nadia, who is still 10 years old, and Samira, who is still 65. But the doctor has their glass bricks which contain their accounts, the doctor is able to go, say it with me, wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey. He's able to transfer some of Samir's years back to Nadia, so he sort of equalizes their ages. So Nadia is now 20 years old instead of 10, and Samira is 35 instead of 30. So he manages to sort of, kind of, restore them to where they were supposed to be. Yeah, but Nadia had previously been 40, so now she's 20, so... She gets the, the best end of this deal, doesn't she? And the doctor and Nadia yeah. and Samira has been shorted a few years, but yeah. Andrew Andrew had paid back five years of his debt earlier in the book, and that's gone. But yeah. the rest of his hundred thousand dollar debt has been cancelled out. So Andrew and Samira basically get the new series adventures version of a happy ending. Yeah, because they, they couple up at that point as well, don't they? They yeah, it's implied they run off together and they're gonna go do anything else for the rest of their lives, but work in a bank. That's it. They're getting out of the rat race, and uh, uh, he's going to be a musician, and uh, yeah, she's going to do something creative as well, I think, isn't she? I think she's going to open up a deli. That's it, yeah. Um, and the doctor suggests that Nadia, um, her explanation for de-aging by 20 years, she should tell everyone she's been in an exclusive Swiss clinic. <laughs> <laughs> 
Then in the epilogue, we flash back to Holland in the year 1636, where a struggling tulip farmer is looking for more time in the day to harvest her tulips. Yeah. And two strange Dutchmen wearing uh, knee-high, knee-high stockings and uh, those old-fashioned pants arrive on her farm. Yeah. With a very familiar set of speech patterns. Yeah, and it, and it's uh, you realize that uh, yeah the same alien creature is is behind the the tulip mania craze uh, in the, in the Netherlands. So when the doctor talks about the tulip market collapse in the 17th century, we're seeing it happen now at the end of the book. Yeah, and now we learn why it happened. That's it. So uh, yeah, it was um, just a, a brilliant book. I thought. Very clever, very funny, very topical. Still topical today, even though the subprime crisis has passed for the time being. Yeah, Definitely one of my favorite new series adventures, and I thank you for letting me come on and drone about it. No problem. I, uh, it was, uh, it was, I'm pleased it's been re-released because it, I don't know if I'd have got around to reading it, or it might have been a long time before I got around to, to, to reading it because I thought I'd already read it. So it's, uh, yeah, really, really enjoyable read. And, and Naomi Alderman's career is taking off, so I'm glad Doctor Who is able to capitalize by talking about the time that she was ours. Yeah, yeah, I guess it's, it's less, less and less likely she'll come back to, to write another one. Uh, I think she's a little busy now with other things. Yeah, but I'll definitely be picking up her other books uh, on the back of this. Yes, Liar's Gospel, which I have read, and The Power, which I'm looking to read next. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to look out for those. Definitely. And then her first novel, Disobedience, I believe, just came out as a movie a few months ago. Ah, right. I'll need to look out. So she's kind of all over the place. Yeah. Yeah, I'll need she to look out. She must have one of those watches. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you very much for joining me today. It's been a, been a pleasure discussing this one with you. Always a pleasure. And uh, we will speak to you again probably during Series 11 for a commentary. Yes. Great. Uh, well, thank you very much. Join me next time on the Trotman Podcast. I'll be speaking to Stephen Hatcher about the Hooverville 10 convention. Thanks for listening and goodbye. Good night now.